Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin. This is our first episode being recorded in the new year, episode 13. Dimitri, how are you? Um, it's a good day. It's a good day, Conrad. And the first episode of the year, of course, uh, we congratulate everybody celebrating Christmas uh, at the beginning of 2023 here on the old calendar. So as you may know, the, the um, Orthodox Christians on the old calendar celebrate Christmas on the 7th of January. So we, of course, congratulate everybody with the great feast day. And um, yeah, wish a happy new year to everybody who hasn't watched our last episode of the year. Um, uh, episode 12, that was a pretty good development. We do discuss the great sort of uh, some of the things that took place last year. So definitely give that video a watch, especially the last 30 minutes of it. I think you'll find some interesting sort of summaries of what took place in 2022. Now, moving on from here, Conrad, I suppose you could lead us into exactly what we'll be discussing today. There's a few things on the on the cards for us. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, we, we talk for a few minutes, let's, a few minutes at least before these episodes to figure out what to cram in because there's just so much going on. But we're going to be we're going to be talking, obviously, about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, uh, this Christmas truce stuff. You know, people had a lot of opinions about it on both sides, of course. Solidar, Bakhmut, big moves are happening with Wagner, the MOD, militias. Of course, we're also going to talk about some prophecies. You know, people always ask us to talk about St. Paisios. We are going to be talking a bit about St. Paisios today. Don't worry. The Pope Benedict, he passed away. We'll be mentioning that. Things going on in Israel, things going on in the U.S., House of Representatives, big news stuff, implications for Ukraine. And then at the end, we'll have some analysis on, you know, global benepolitics, conspiracies, and some some other fantastic stuff. And with all of that, we're going to start with the war, the front, where we kind of usually start these days, things going on in Russia. Uh, Putin called for a Christmas truce at one point at the behest of Patriarch Kirill. Dmitry, uh, would you want to start there with, with some of our analysis? Yeah, so interestingly enough, um, after liturgy on the 5th of January, Patriarch Kirill, this was um, in the AM still in the morning, Patriarch Kirill had a, in a sermon announced publicly, and it was instantly published almost before 12, before noon, that, look, he'd like the Ukrainians and Russians to have a Christmas truce starting at midday on the 6th of January onwards until midnight, um, you know, the end of Christmas on the 7th. So essentially one and a half day truce armistice. Now, what does this remind us of? Maybe going back to like our uh, middle school, high school sort of history classes where we recall hearing about a World War One armistice that took place in, uh, during Christmas, I think in 1914, at least for the first couple of years of World War One. So there is this tradition among, say, Christian nations when they celebrate a great feast day such as Christmas, and yet these nations are at war for political, geopolitical reasons, such as Ukraine and Russia at the moment. And... Of course, when Christmas does arrive, everybody has to kind of put down their arms and stop fighting just for, you know, a couple of days, maybe a week at most. And so in order to, you know, give all the Christians participating in the armed forces time to actually properly celebrate this great Christian feast day. Now, Petro Kirill, of course, uh, asked both presidents, Zelensky and Putin, and Putin responded amicably in the next, like, almost seemingly right afterwards, as if, and I think partially maybe they spoke about it ahead of time, that Putin instantly released a press release where he says, look, Russia's willing actually to go ahead of the armistice and not fight uh, on the 6th and 7th of January's 2023. Like, we're willing to put down our arms just for a bit and not fire any artillery shells, tell Wagner to stop, you know, pushing forward in Bakhmut. So all conflict would essentially just put be, be put to a hold. Now, what was the Ukrainian answer? Now, uh, of course, we're recording this on the 8th of January. The Ukrainian answer from Zelensky, from even the, the head military, the military staff, all of the military info info groups of the Ukrainian uh, army, they all announced that, no, we will not be holding a truce, sort of an armistice. We will not be putting down our arms for Christmas. And some of them even said things, defensive things, such as, you know, 
and this is publicly all on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the Ukrainian um, you know head channels and kind of see these replies to these to this proposal by the Orthodox Christian leader Patriarch Kirill that the Ukrainian side basically just said, "Look, we celebrated Christmas on the twenty fifth of December, um, you know." Uh, so yeah, we won't be celebrating on the seventh. So you know, offensive things such as that, which may even be offensive to certain Ukrainian servicemen. And yeah, so Zan Zelensky, of course, officially did announce that no, Ukraine will not be uh, holding an armistice over Christmas 23. And if you recall correctly, uh, I believe in on Easter in tw- in 2022 there was a short armistice over Easter that weekend. So again. It seems like 10 months after, or not 10 months, but about eight months after Easter, things have already heated up to such point, maybe a point of no return, that even great Christian feast days are not being you know, included on the sort of timeout list. Oh, it's unfortunate. And from a realist perspective, of course, we could easily say that Patriarch Kirill and, of course, Putin could have seen this coming. They may have had no intention of not necessarily keeping it had they agreed, but had knowledge that the Ukrainians would agree to this under no circumstances. And we're just hoping to take kind of a Christian PR victory, which that's fine. But at the end of the day, along the front line, both sides immediately exchanged fire. It wasn't like the Russian people were like, all these people, people I agree with some accounts I like were like, oh, what are the Russians going to do? They're just going to not respond. They're just going to take losses. Like, no, they, they obviously defended themselves when the Ukrainians didn't, uh, you know, reciprocate the truce. But that isn't to say that one, you don't do these sorts of things as the leader of a Christian nation. The, the some people were saying that this is going to, like, of course, reading what Strelkov was saying and some of these other more, you know, figures that seem to always be dissatisfied with what's going on. Maybe there was a bit of dissatisfaction among some of the troops that had taken heavy losses, but I think among the Russian general public, I don't think that it was something particularly scandalous. And with all that being said, I think the Christmas truce of World War One is a great testament to, you know, Christian civilization, not to say that if anything, it's more of a, a little light on a blot that was, you know, a terrible war of World War One. But it does show that now, like even in Ukraine, a country where everybody is still, all the Christians are still technically on the old calendar. But all these people, all this politicalization has happened, and so many people wanted to celebrate it on the twenty fifth. And there's schismatic on celebrating with Uniate Catholics all the time. And in general, it just shows you that there's less unity among these two Orthodox nations now than there was under Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, disparate nations in the beginning of the 20th century, which is, you know, very unfortunate to say the least. Yeah, and of course, this wasn't the only tragedy that took place in the, in the last week and a half or so. Um, on New Year's Day, actually, the Russian media confirmed that 63 members, newly mobilized, actually, military members of the uh, Russian army were killed in an apartment complex. So they were essentially mobilized, trained, and moved out to the front in in, in, the, in a, a small town just the west of Donetsk called Makayevka. Now, this Makayevka village, I guess it's like a town. You can almost call it, you know, several tens of thousands of people, but Makayevka has been around in the news for the last eight years. This is where a lot of the fighting has been taking place between the Donbass uh, so-called rebels and the Ukrainian uh, military over the last eight years, heavily because it's essentially the town right before Donetsk. Um, so it was kind of like the front hold base. But so, so these mobilized troops were moved into this apartment building and they were just resting overnight, maybe even celebrating New Year's Day. So this was on the 31st of December, 2022. And of course, a... U.S.-funded uh, HIMARS strike took out the entire apartment, killing, as the Russian media confirmed, 63 people. Um, some claim about 89, but of course the Ukrainians, as well as certain media Western sources, claim hundreds of Russians killed in this one strike. This is one of the deadliest, uh, most successful, from a Ukrainian perspective, strikes that have occurred 
um, by the Ukrainian military and artillery sort of bombardment of this scale where they can, you know, reach 63 people like in, in one go, if not hundreds as they claim. So, and of course, uh, for those who don't understand that, well, what a HIMARS is, it's a high mobility artillery rocket system. Now it's probably the most developed artillery system in the modern world. Essentially it's, um, if you can imagine a, a pickup trailer with a rocket, with a series of rockets attached to the back, it can shoot away, I believe, uh, six Six, six artillery rockets, and I'm speaking in very layman terms here. So the point, the point is, this pickup truck um, military vehicle can move around very quickly and reposition. So it's very hard to calculate where it is at a given time. It's not very large as well, so you can kind of even hide it. Um, it's very hard to spot from satellites. And so these high mobility artillery rockets, they drive around, position themselves, and it doesn't take for them long to GPS track find a location on the map on, say, the Russian side, this is a Ukrainian HIMARS system, and simply fire off the rockets. Now, how far do these rockets fly? The HIMARS, and these are, of course, the probably the signature weapons of the Ukrainian army. The, the missiles can fly up to 300 kilometers, but realistically 200 kilometers. So if you, you can imagine that's roughly 240 miles in American terms. That's quite far. So you will never see or even hear this artillery shell flying in. And it, the, these HIMARS, uh, the Ukraine, at the, December 2022, has uh, amassed almost 20 of them. In September 2022, um, the Ukrainian side had 16 HIMARS. So, and of course, it's... It's easy to say, well, the Ukrainian-Russian war front is 800, 1,000 kilometers long. Surely these 20 machines can't you know, cause that big of a difference. And they don't, frankly. HIMARS, the, they have a few weaknesses. One of them is that uh, they're very bad at hitting uh, mobile targets. So once they shoot, once they shoot at certain locations, not at targets. So they shoot at buildings, defense positions. They can't shoot at, say, a moving target. If someone moves, you do have several minutes to actually move out of the way. It's... It's quite hard to. It's impossible almost to hit a moving target. They're great at shooting bridges, barracks, apartment buildings, like in this case in Makayevka. And of course, um, the other, of course, benefit to HIMARS is that well, they're very mobile. They're hard to track down. The Russians, I believe, haven't destroyed a single HIMARS since the beginning of this conflict, which is why the number has amassed from I believe initially was eight, then sixteen, and end of twenty twenty two, they now have twenty. And all the HIMARS are produced overseas, of course. None of them are Ukrainian-made, so to speak. So it's all imported weaponry. And yeah, we've seen the first, probably the deadliest strike, essentially, of 22 happen right on New Year's Eve. Now, it was a big thing. Of The Ukrainians were making a big deal out of it, which shows you that it was their biggest strike. Like, they, of course, propaganda had claimed bigger strikes before this. This is the only one with evidence. And the biggest, the fact they're making such a big deal out of it shows that the ones that were before, that they would just casually say, oh, yeah, we did this, that was, that was propaganda. But I think... Another thing that's coming with these new weapon systems, it shows that as as Wagner, as military advances in Solidar, I believe it was just re as of the recording of this video, uh, Ukraine had fallen back to the salt mine, I believe, in Solidar, which this is in the Bakhmut area and along the Donbass front line. This is These are big, big advancements for Russia. And I think because of all of this, we're now hearing about Poland and a collection of other countries hoping to transport Leopard 2s, which are, you know, kind of the premier Western tank right now that they're willing to send over into Ukraine, which they're desperately asking for. And in, in some ways, some people say this doesn't matter, that the Russian tanks are far superior to Leopard 2s. We've seen some footage of rumoredly Turkish tanks in Ukraine that have been really not faring very well uh, to Russian artillery. And it seems in general that as Ukraine is falling back more and more along the Donbass front line, especially that the West is like, oh, wow, we got to send them some of this stuff. But at the same time, Ukraine wants it more, they need it more than the West is still willing to give, despite Poland and Germany really willing to take the next level, which is providing tanks, which up until this point they haven't done. And as all this goes on, unfortunately, we're also seeing 
dramatic increase in the persecution of the canonical church. That kind of seems to be how it goes, that the Ukrainian state almost lashes out in anger for their military losses at the church, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, we're kind of seeing this, uh, especially the, some of the bishops and the priests on the front lines or in these areas which kind of fall right on the fighting zones are now being, of course, persecuted and even prosecuted, legally speaking, in criminal courts in Ukraine for things such as anti-Ukrainian propaganda, you know, supporting... Uh, of being a treason, things of this nature, like various, even racism and discrimination, funny enough, even though these, some of these priests and clergymen are ethnically and, you know, uh, I guess even genetically Ukrainian, so to speak, if such a thing even exists. But um, yeah, so culturally, Zelensky has made the statement that, look, the Ukrainian culture supersedes any sort of religious uh, affiliation you may have, whether that be a neo-pagan, Orthodox Jewish, Orthodox Christian, you know, you have to serve Ukraine first. If you do not serve, then, you know, you have to, you either you fall in line with the status quo or you're going to be ostracized and, of course, pushed out and made illegal. So that's, of course, what's happening on the spiritual end. It has gone on into 23. Of course, some of the Russian bishops have um, responded with very radical things. Perhaps we'll mention at the end of the episode. And name, namely, uh, Conrad did mention the fact that Wagner has been ex- incredibly successful in Solidar and Bakhmut, and that's exactly what's happening here. So the Russian, the main Russian military arm is actually assisting uh, in the current front at Bakhmut and Solidar in in form of, in the form of artillery fire and sort of artillery tracking and marking but mostly the frontline combat is being is being conducted by at least on the Russian side by this Wagner mercenary infantry and so we see this essentially this mercenary group and for those who don't know Wagner is essentially the Russian equivalent perhaps at this point even a larger version of Blackwater that served in the Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns of the United States if you guys know what Blackwater is then you'll understand the reference but Wagner in Bakhmut has recently, you know, ha- has had certain things occur. F- firstly, they've been successful the last week. I remember a couple episodes back, we did mention the fact that, look, Wagner has been complaining that they haven't been pushing far enough. There's, there was videos released for Wagner and mercenaries were swearing at the Russian leadership. They were saying, look, you guys, the military, you know, the Minister of Defense is not supporting us. And there was a lot of crying going on. But now, after, you know, after the new year, look, it seems like Ukrainians are leaving Solidar. Solidar is a really small settlement just north of Bakhmut. Bakhmut is the main essentially the main hub of the fighting in the Ukrainian war right now. It's a city which has been ex- completely depopulated. All the citizens have been evacuated either to the Russian side or to the Ukrainian side. 60% of the city is allegedly destroyed, the former governor of Bakhmut reports, and he's you know speaking about this from Kiev. But yeah, I do believe it's kind of like a new Mariupol, you could almost say. Like, the Russian military is pounding it with artillery. The Ukrainian military is pounding it with artillery. Both sides are committed to kind of making a stand in this particular area. So I think there's a lot to be said. And of course, most interestingly, it, Wagner has employed, for the first time, we have we see direct evidence of its... Uh, it's prisoner, it's prisoner um, battalion, so to speak. There's, there's a there's a delegated group of former prisoners, former convicts from Russian prisons, who are now being employed as soldiers by this mercenary group. Now you may think, oh well, hold on, uh, how are prisoners and criminal former criminals from Russian prisons being used in the front lines? This seems like unjust, immoral. But no, in fact, many countries over the centuries have, in fact, taken people from prisons and giving them these contracts, saying, look, if you serve. If you serve in the military, your sentence will be reduced. Now, morally and ethically speaking, former murderers, people for very violent crimes, you know, assault, sexual assault, rape, things of this nature, even pedophiles, are not usually accepted into these groupings. Um, but yeah, recently in Bakhmut, we've seen uh, open evidence that, yeah, the Russians have been employing our former prisoners, 
mostly non-violent prisoners, but yes, uh, people from Russian prisons have been associated in the fighting. So that's quite interesting, I think. Conrad, I'm not sure if you have any comments on this. I don't believe Afghanistan or Iraq, because these were overseas conflicts, and the US kind of had its uh, pick, its kind of cream of the crop choice of who exactly to send overseas. They didn't. The US never even had this, I guess, need to ever use prisoners in conflicts, I think, in the last... Yeah, in, in, in the entire history, almost, you could say. Maybe even the Civil War. Things were different at the frontier times, because, you know, if people talk about frontier law, you know, what was a criminal and not a criminal sometimes out there before the law reached that area. But, yeah, no, I mean, besides, you know, the crimes actually committed, unfortunately, by American contractors and soldiers overseas, no actual, I think, prisoners were shipped over there to fight anybody. But we've seen that back in the day, at the beginning of the conflict, there were some very interesting, you know, I wouldn't say inspiring, but, you know, perhaps just interesting videos of Sergei Prigozhin going to these prison yards and giving, holding an AK-47 and giving these speeches to these men. And certain places, like entire prison yards would sign up and join the Wagner group, which that's just, that's very interesting. This is, again, this is very, uh, this is almost old world stuff. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. But unfortunately, what's also very old world is the the level of persecution. And there have been increased sanctions on some of the most beloved bishops in the Russian slash Ukrainian church, as well as people being stripped of their of their citizenship. And maybe some of these men may not care so much about what it means to be stripped of Ukrainian citizenship, but that has real consequences. It means that the Ukrainian state no longer has to, you know, guarantee you, quote unquote, the rights given to you by the Ukrainian constitution, which, you know, the Ukrainian constitution, not that that really has much power necessarily, but it still does provide you a certain level of legal uh, reference to the state that is ostensibly persecuting you. And I was just going to read a quick list, actually, of all of the priests and bishops that have been uh, stripped of their citizenship. Uh, starting, we got Metropolitan Jonathan of Tulchin, Bishop Sergius of Ladyzinsk, uh, Archbishop Varsinofi of Novoazovsk, Father Victor Anatolievich, Bishop Nestor of Yalta, Metropolitan Melody of Chernivtsi, Metropolitan Joseph of Romansk, Metropolitan of Dnipropetrovsk, Archbishop Ambrose of Volnovak, Archbishop Arkady of Rovanki, Metropolitan Lazar of Simferopol and Crimea, Archbishop Paisios of Konstantinovsky, Metropolitan Arseny of Sviatogorsk, and I believe not just stripped of their citizenship, but actually sanctioned, we have Metropolitan Luke of Zaporozhye, and I believe Metropolitan Longin, who actually gave a homily where I was going to quote him as well, he says, Today our Ukrainian state has begun a war against God, against the Church of God, and against the Ukrainian people. This is not fighting evil, this is not fighting the enemy, brothers and sisters, this is a struggle against the Lord God himself and his Church. We ask that the Lord would bring to mind the insane people who think they are very strong and choose the war with God, heaven, and God's people. They begin to vote in regions, districts, in the Rada to stop the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. It means to stop the Lord. Such crazy people have not yet seen the history of our Church and the Orthodox faith. So, this is all getting very serious. Metropolitan Luke has also spoken out. He, of course, is the Metropolitan of Zaporozhye, but he now resides in Melitopol, which is the second largest city in his archdiocese, which is currently under Russian control. So he is, thankfully, safe from actual, you know, overt state persecution and possible, like, I mean, these people who say that kind of stuff, there are people in Ukraine that would just kill you. As we've seen, priests, the priest was stabbed in the neck the past week by just a crazy alcoholic Ukrainian nationalist that stumbled into his church. So be sure to keep the church in your prayers, obviously. And uh, again, for better or for worse, the priests, the bishops that some of these bishops are not even, they've made no statements about being pro-Russian. They've made no statements at all. They've remained very moderate, but it just goes to show you that for better or for worse, for all these people, it would just be a lot better to be under the protection of the Russian military. Yeah, of course. I think one of the primary problems that 
um, kind of goes under the radar, but you did mention that the bishops personally, of course, probably do not even care that their citizenship has been revoked. These people are monastics. Most of them are not married, or, you know, uh, especially all the bishops aren't married, but some of the priests possibly not married as well. So they have no real tie to physical property as such, personally speaking. But what what this does encroach upon is the fact that, well, in their relevant diocese, their diocese are mentioned, uh, you know, under each particular form of, you know, legislative... Um, so, so they're given like uh, business business memberships. They're given tax exemptions, etc. There are these uh, implications on a sort of property and real estate basis that these sanctions fall upon. It's like, okay, so the CEO, the the chairman of your particular diocese, is now an illegal citizen. What does this uh, say about, say, who controls this particular church, parish, uh, maybe this monastery or this historical building? Does the Ukrainian state now confiscate this you know, particular property? And also, of course, implications uh, of inheritance probate law, things of this nature, uh, will say if one of these bishops passes away in this citizenship exile state, who gets to, who does he give his investments to? Like, notice, people don't understand. They think, oh, well, priests, bishops, like, the investments are cheap. No, no, Each one of these investments has, like, they're worth thousands of dollars, like we're talking, and, of course, this may not seem like a lot to some people, but uh, usually the investments of the bishops are somewhere north of $50,000 investment, okay? This is just because the strings, the, the jewelry attached. Now, the bishop, once he passes, he needs to leave a certain deed to pass these things on to a diocese. If he is no longer part of that diocese or hasn't visited it, how could he pass on these material objects that he has, you know, kind of worn as, um, you know, members of his uh, tonsure, these, uh, so this equipment has been given to him. How can he sort of, you know, give it back to his diocese, even legally speaking? Like, this is a huge problem. And this is this great inconvenience now is probably stressing these great clergymen out. And Zelensky knows this, uh, you know, he probably has solicitors and lawyers and attorneys actually working on these issues to make the life of these Orthodox Christians miserable and horrible, okay? So, and, and of course, Lord forbid if any of these bishops have family, right? Because, the again, it's like, okay, well, the family members in hospital, it's similar to the COVID lockdowns, right? If we recall, when the lockdown will take place, um, could you visit your family members in hospital? Could you visit them? Could you perform, like, could a priest visit them and perform last rites? Could they give, con you know, could a priest give them a final confession in hospital, in a COVID ward, for example? Probably not, depending on your state, country, etc., the, you know, level of uh, COVID strictness, I suppose, that your particular state's enforced. But here in this case, can say uh, Bishop Nestor of Yalta visit his family in Yalta, or visit even his some of the some of his spiritual children and give them last rites? Maybe uh, if they're say passing away or in old age, probably not. So it's not like like this will have incredibly. This is really cruel what Zelensky has done, and these clergymen, of course, are incredibly brave for sticking to their guns and not actually, <laughs> uh, no pun intended, but they're actually. Um, sticking to this uh their positions and mind you some of these positions are not even that radical like let's let's face the facts here like um metropolitan arseny of svetogorsk right probably the most beautiful monastery in ukraine besides the kiva pichersk lavra so svetogorsk monastery is the biggest monastery in the donbass region so essentially it was controlled by the pro-russian rebels so to speak since uh, for the last eight to nine years and it has been a hub for refugees humanitarian aid both sides have been sending people there and mitchell Arseny kind of oversaw this entire thing and he never not once has he like, spoken out explicitly in a pro-russian statement he's always been 
neutral and says, look, we need to pray, we need to help refugees. I'm not taking a particular stance in this conflict, even when his monastery was openly bombarded, firstly by the Ukrainians, and I believe accidentally Russian shells fell in the monastery as well, and then the Ukrainians again. So this monastery is in the front line of fire, and Metropolitan Arseny still did not take an anti-Zelensky stance, and here he's on the centralist. So it seems like uh, this you know, Ukrainian government, it doesn't even care for the folks who have taken a point of neutrality or even a semi-pro-Ukrainian position. It's like, no, everybody gets sanctioned because we're going to put fear into the hearts of the Orthodox folks in Ukraine. That's very true and unfortunate. And again, we asked everybody to pray for these people. But as the as the violence increases and as, as, as the Russian front line advances, you hope that you know, the front line can move forward enough to where this beautiful monastery, the Pearl of Donbass, I believe I briefly mentioned it in my solo episode, can you know, be, can just not be like raised to the ground. Multiple churches there have burned to the ground because of, there's even been sectarian violence, people on the ground that have infiltrated there to try to cause disruption and vandalism because they have some weird vendetta. Then they think that these people are pro-Russian sycophants. And I'm even hearing rumors that there's documents being brought up in the Ukrainian government to, with all these people that they censure and that take their citizenship away, that they're going to forge documents that prove that they were, you know, collaborationists or whatever, or you know, third Romists or Russian world supporters, which I guess if they could just, like we mentioned a few episodes back, I guess if they could just find a book that talks about Ukraine being Russia, which is, spoilers, most history books, uh, if, this, if they can verify that as a reason to be an enemy of the state, I guess I guess they won't be quote-unquote trumped-up charges. It'll just be a bunch of silly nonsense. But is there anything else you want to let us know kind of about the war on the ground, about the persecution? Because we're going to shift more to the geopolitical and some of the stuff that Putin's been helping behind the scenes with Erdogan and Assad, as well as get into some prophecies about, about Turkey. Yeah, I believe one of the micro issues that should be mentioned is just the, again, well, let's go back to the prisoner battalion uh, operating in Bakhmut. There's some interesting stories coming out. I guess it's it'll be good to firstly report it, because I don't think other podcasts are actually doing this. But So um, according to the Russian mainstream media six prisoners from the wagner mercenary group former now by prisoners we mean they were recruited from prisons by Yevgeny prigozhin and they were recruited into the russian you know um mercenary group to fight in in ukraine now these uh, six uh, former prisoners have escaped in Bakhmut, and Bakhmut is this, mind you, it's like the, where the peak fighting is happening. Both sides are shelling like almost 250 shells a day. Like the city is completely destroyed. It's a wasteland. It's like a Call of Duty map, which, you know, it, all, all intents and purposes, like extremely intense. And the survival rate is very low, uh, let's just say. So six prisoners have. Heavy heavy machine guns, grenade launchers, they've escaped, okay? So these six people have gone completely rogue, and uh, this has happened This happened literally right on New Year's Eve, I believe the 30th of December 2022, and it's quite interesting. So they're still unfound, they're still unconfirmed where these six folks have went, but um, so they're still running around, they're kind of like a Pirates of the Caribbean storyline going on there. And the first time we ever heard of a deserter, so to speak, was on the 7th of December, a uh, Wagner deserter in Rostovskoye Oblast, which is just east of Donbass, so actually inside of Russia or the former Russian Federation um, territory. So actually a, a man with a heavy machine gun, we're talking like 200 rounds, big, big machine gun, not an AK-47 assault rifle, what began shooting upon just on the side of just uh, out of the... So this is, reminds me a bit of the Rambo first movie where, uh, you know, Rambo was you know chased by park rangers and police officers. So we have this former uh, mercenary guy just suddenly start shooting at a police car out of the bushes and in, in the forest. And essentially he's, he injured one of the police officers with a machine gun. Fortunately, nobody died. He was uh, detained around... This is on the 7th of December. So you do have these 
interesting fringe stories of, say, well, if there's a huge war going on, there's going to be these uh, fringe um, escapades and people just kind of going AWOL. And this is what we're seeing here. It's kind of like um, Apocalypse Now, the film, where the guy ends up, you know, joining the uh, tribe, you know, the American... American military colonel ends up leaving leaving the American military and joining this tribe of Vietnamese, you know, spiritual, whatever, this group somewhere in the jungle. And here we have two we have these former Wagner prisoners, former mercenaries, essentially just having enough of the conflict and actually just running off. And of course, uh, what's what, what else is interesting is three other prisoners were announced dead. And how the announcements occur, it's not like the Wagner has a website where they say, okay, so we have X amount of mercenaries dead. Each particular city from which the prisoners were form formerly, you know, they were, say, citizens of, right? So each particular city. In, so this city in particular in Saratov, right? Um, it announced on its official Saratov uh, city uh, website that, oh, we have three prisoners, who, former prisoners, uh, members of our city who have passed away in the Ukraine. They were killed in action. Now, what's interesting about this is one of the people who was killed in uh, one of the prisoners was a, a man named Andre Berezin. Now, Ber uh, Andre Berezin was a... Uh, a former, you know, a convicted murderer, essentially, but not, not like a, you know, a cold-blooded murderer. He was, well, essentially, he was cold-blooded because he was a gangster assassin, actually. He assassinated at least three people, allegedly six in the 1990s. If you recall, Russia and Ukraine in the 1990s was exceptionally criminally run, especially the early 1990s, before Putin came to power, so during the Yeltsin years. And this guy was, a tr like, an actual hitman, like, from the Hitman games, going around assassinating people. He was sentenced, essentially, uh, eventually in 2012. And the other criminal charge, of course, he was uh, provided was that the Saratov, uh, Saratov has a local television station which he shot a grenade launcher at in, the, in 1994. So, well, for all these things, he was sentenced to 25 years in jail. And so having served, I believe, 10 years in 2022, he was approached by Evgeny Prigozhin, who says, look, well, you're a former assassin, you should join Wagner Mercenary Group. And this is the first case we've ever seen of a former, so to speak, murderer being kind of taken upon, taken into the Wagner Mercenary Group, into this prisoner brigade. Now, this is a very questionable, because a lot of even Sar Grad, the famous Orthodox Christian channel, was questioning our oh, man, these you know, former former murderers, former people with criminal, you know, these heavy, violent crimes on them, they shouldn't be actually taken into the mercenary groups because it's a bit immoral. And I do agree, and maybe there's a difference between, you know, a psychopath killing somebody and, and being a former, you know, assassin or a, a bounty hunter or something of this sort. But uh, whatever the case, we're simply reporting on it. We're not really making any moral judgments, but it is a little bit in that gray area here where we have Wagner mercenary group already evidenced openly that yes they are actually recruiting former assassins and former gangsters into their you know group for better or for worse we'll see how how this kind of plays out so yeah some interesting news about the prisoner brigades like first time we actually have some solid information about them and at this point no no, no information about numbers how many have totally fallen how many have been actually recruited into the wagner mercenary um organization we don't have those numbers they're not published on russian websites nor english ones so it's Pretty much all speculation and sort of fragmented, compartmentalized news pieces. All very interesting stuff. I'm very grateful to the Wagner Group for no other reason than providing us with some of the best footage, some of the best information. Kind of the, they're they're kind of not restrained by governmental secrecy so much, but at the same time, because they're not directly part of the Russian military command, they're not able to give up grand strategy with their posts and everything like that it's all it's it same with the, some but it's not really so much anymore coming out of the donetsk and luhansk militia because those have all been completely integrated into the russian military at this point 
So it's just Wagner at this point that we're getting some of these early information, this earlier footage. Because if you see footage from the Russian military, that's like months old. Like they won't even put post footage where the current front line about current front line, like where the front line is at a current state, because that would just in their mind be giving up way too much intelligence. And I'm not even saying they're wrong. And the Wagner Group have also built their huge facility in St. Petersburg, this like giant kind of futuristic glass never-ending balcony into it looks almost like the guggenheim museum in new york but even more like reflective it's all very interesting but unless you have a few more things to say about any of that you talked about a gray area speaking of gray areas turkey probably the grayest of all the gray countries in this conflict making it one of the most interesting erdogan of course being very much against exactly like the the the, the nato line obviously not necessarily supporting russia but he's trying his best to maintain their relationship he's Move, trying to move forward with his gas hub idea that Russia supports. And even more than that, he's completely making up with Assad, Russia's probably number one or number two ally. And whether we'll be getting Assad Erdogan summit or an Assad Putin Erdogan summit or both at different times uh, is likely, in fact. And uh, with all of that, it also brings to light word about the U.S. interference in Turkey, because at this point, the U.S. is not happy with Erdogan at all. John Bolton says, we want Turkey out of NATO. What are your thoughts on some of that, Dimitri? Well, I think regardless of John Bolton's statements, uh, Turkey being in NATO is one of the guarantees, of course, because one of the guarantees of NATO's success, because Turkey does cover NATO's, I suppose, southern reach, so to speak. And remember, originally, when the whole Iran issue came around, where you know the U.S. was infringing upon I- Iranian missiles, and they said to Russia, "Well, um, we're positioning uh, our defensive missile systems in." In Turkey, in order to protect Russia from Iran, this is a this is a benefit. This is a benefit to Russia. So Turkey, as an outpost for NATO missiles, is of course key. This is what um, this is what forced the whole Cuban Missile Crisis in the first place in the 1960s. When you know, and this was shown in all kinds of mass media, including movies such as X Men: First Class and things of this nature. When uh, Khrushchev sent uh, ships with um, nuclear nuclear missiles to Cuba in order to mimic the fact that the U.S. has sent nuclear weapons to Turkey and kind of place them all around Anatolia at the time. So Russia was technically in this during the Soviet years in the 60s trying to turn Cuba into uh, the sort of its own Turkey right under the belly of the United States just as Turkey is technically right under Russia's I suppose soft side and the missiles from Turkey uh they can fly far enough to reach Moscow and St Petersburg essentially but um, besides that, I guess just on a side note, Moscow is one of the only cities in the world which has a complete nuclear shield. Like, it's been up since the 1960s, and I think it's still functional, and it's always being refurbished. It's not spoken about a lot. I believe Israel has one, but Moscow does have one of some of the best anti-nuclear defense uh, capabilities on the planet. So, For better or for worse, Moscow remains safe, but of course, Turkey... Being in this sort of gray area, yes, the U.S. will need to keep it in NATO. It's, uh, of course, regardless of Mr. Bolton's statements, I think it's certainly in the interest of both Republicans and Democrats to sort of, even if this means sacrificing the whole, uh, sacrificing, I suppose, Assad Syria, giving Assad, you know, free reign. If Turkey needs to follow its personal interests as well as, you know, remaining in, um, remaining in NATO, I think that's the sacrifice the U.S. Uh, military industrial complex will need to make. So interesting because if there's anybody that I think would get kind of high on their own farts and not and be deluded about the state of military decline in the United States, it would be John Bolton. And I guess he sees the loss of the massive Turkish military as not a loss to NATO, but I, it is. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it must just be a rhetorical tactic for a greater ploy to likely, I believe, oust Erdogan in the 2023 Turkish presidential election. We've, we have arrived in that year, I guess, got to get used to it. But I think 
we're going to be seeing a lot of that. We had Assad and Erdogan agree that the Kurds are a outpost of Israel in the U.S. and are subversive actors, which seems to be true considering that Kurds were the primary instigators of the Iranian protests. There's been big... Iran just executed one of the instigators who's on video killing a police officer, but the U.S. doesn't care about that. We, uh, we're we going to mourn him and use it as a pretext for more intervention in that country. But with all these things, Erdogan is very much showing that he is not exactly controlled by U.S. interests. And there are large factions in Turkey that are beholden to U.S. interests and a large opposition that I think is very much queued up by globalist powers to take over from Erdogan, which very much lines up with a lot of what St. Paisios and which is echoed by Metropolitan Neophytos, a lot of what he says. So I'm actually going to read a little bit of that now. St. Paisios talks about how we, of course, know that the bo- there's all this prophecies about the Bosphorus Straits and the war with Russia and Turkey. And what Metropolitan Neophytos said, as he heard from St. Paisios, was that Erdogan will fall, and after him, inexperienced people, pro-Westerners, Kemalists, which is a Turkish political ideology, will take power and they will create big problems. He says, and their friends, the pseudo-friends, the Russians, will transform into enemies in one night, and there will not be a single city in Turkey which will not be bombarded. This was said after the Kemalis comment. And uh, then St. Paisios, this is actually from him, he talks about, he says, after the Turkish provocation, the Russians will descend to the Bosphorus Straits, not to help us, us being the Greeks. They will have other interests, but without wanting it, they will be helping us. Which totally makes sense based on the current geopolitical relationship between Russia and Greece. And then he goes on to say, when this generation of politicians that govern Turkey will cease, and the new ones will undertake. He says that's when all that will happen. And that new generation, I think, is going to be the ultimate NATOist, pro-Western group in Turkey, secularists, as they would be less even Islamic than Erdogan, who, you know, of course, spearheaded the transformation of Hagia Sophia into a mosque, and even other, actually, historic monasteries. Yeah, that's right. I think all the prophecies, they do point towards the fact that, yes, despite the fact that Turkey and Russia are allies in many ways today, and of course not the strongest allies, like the US still has closer ties to Turkey than Russia does, but Russia's proximity to Turkey and also Russia's um, semi, like an understanding between Russia and Turkey in regards to Islam and Orthodox Christianity does sort of cement this uh, idea that, well, how can a war take place in the future? But the prophecies do state clearly that, yes, eventually this ancient conflict of Turkey is Russia's, I would say the foremost enemy Russia had historically. Like Russia has fought the Turks and the, you know, I suppose agents of the Islamic Caliphate for the last 600 years like um, on and off, so to speak, but there were at least six or seven uh, Russo-Turkish wars. And you could say like the some of the Mongol Khanates, especially when they converted to Islam, like the uh, Crimean Khanate, have, have, have become vassal states of Turkey. So Turkey does have this uh, history with Russia that's uh, not so amicable. And even today, Putin and Erdogan, who are both, mind you, very similar. We've spoken on previous episodes about this, like Erdogan and Putin both have enormous balls in terms of, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, so to speak, like they are very brave. I remember when the coup occurred in Turkey in 2016 and Erdogan, there was an actual military coup in 2016 that took place in Turkey. And what did Erdogan do? He didn't run away into a bunker. He was at his holiday place when it took, when, you know, when it has taken, when, when it was ongoing and he made calls. He traveled to the capital. He made active political decisions during a coup in which he could have easily been killed. But no, he did not run when, you know, um, when things happened, unlike, you know, some of the recent uh, characters in politics, I won't name names, but Erdogan does have this sort of Trump slash Putin sort of power to him. He does have this gravitas. And he, if, if anyone 
does go to war against Turkey, I don't believe it'll probably be between Putin and Erdogan. As you said, um, Conrad, like there is this understanding that the US needs to replace Erdogan with somebody a bit, somebody a bit more liberal, a bit more um, malleable, someone who doesn't view Turkey as a sort of uh, following its own interests. I think that maybe that's when the prophecies of St. Paisios will come into fruition in the future is when Erdogan say, is replaced, and he's this really, like, a, I guess a very Islamo-nationalistic uh, uh, persona, is replaced with someone a bit more liberal, a bit more toxic even to orthodoxy in a way. And that particular a government will go against Greece, and then Russia will intervene, and that's when we'll see those um, actions take place. That's just my supposition. Of course, anything can happen, um, but we do need to keep in mind these prophecies are still on the cards, and the words said by St. Paisos have not taken place yet, so it's still... Um, it's still on, it's still, yeah, absolutely a possibility. And, you know, we should pray to God that, you know, he, we aren't caught, I suppose, in, in line of those great uh, calamities in the future. We definitely, anybody caught in this, we hope that they're never caught unrepentant, as is the goal of these prophecies, as has been so iterated by Metropolitan Neovitos, who's kind of the biggest witness, the direct anthropological, you know, incarnate witness of some of these words from these great saints and prophets. But one of the big reasons that the U.S., of course, would also benefit from getting rid of Erdogan, the U.S. doesn't like that he turned Hagia Sophia into a mosque. They don't like these big hard lines being drawn between, like, Orthodox Christianity, Christianity, and these other people that they ostensibly consider their allies, especially NATO. And so he, they would much rather have a more secular government that wouldn't do that. And they would hope that they could even reproach with Greece, because as of now, Greece is just a total debt slave to the European Union. And are even been sending not a not a lot, but you know, doing minimal support and stuff to Ukraine because their their government have proven themselves as total globalist World Economic Forum nonsense stooges. The Mitsotakis government, they're I, I I don't know any Greek person that's really enthusiastic about them per se. And despite all of this, we've seen the words of the most likely successors of Erdogan. There's a video I'll have it linked below, just like I'll have this other video I'm going to mention from the fantastic Christian Orthodox Miracles and Prophecies YouTube channel hosted by Panagiotis. I encourage everyone to subscribe. We'll have that linked in the Substack and the YouTube notes. But uh, he has talked about some recent developments in Greece, in Greece politically, that were actually spoken about by St. Paisios. He had mentioned the nautical, uh, the amount of nautical miles that the Greek exclusive economic zone and Greek territorial waters from some of their islands and them moving it forward. Greece has been actually attempting to militarize some of their islands, which goes directly against uh, Turkish interest. And as I said, these people that are going to succeed Erdogan, they've expressed they're just as willing to go to war with Greece and invade these islands as actually Erdogan is, just out of sheer Turkish national interest. And Greece and Turkey both are very, it's very popular on both sides to spew vitriol and, and be, do bellicose rhetoric against the other side over these islands. Of course, Greece views all of Anatolia as theirs. The Turks, at the very least, want more islands because there's islands just a few miles off the coast of mainland Turkey, completely controlled by Greece. And so in this video, Panagiotis translates from some Greek news sources and everything. And St. Paisus talked about uh, the border being moved eventually to 12 nautical miles and then eventually 6 nautical miles, I believe, off the coast of Turkey or something, in some regard from some of the islands, and from Crete as well regarding some resources that they would even want to exploit. There's also in Cyprus disputes over Greek, Cypriot, Turkish utilization of new natural gas and oil reserves that have been found in the eastern Mediterranean. But uh, one of the things that the Turkish government responded after Greece has been militarizing these islands and moving their exclusive economic zones, they made four, not demands, but they stated four things that need to not happen that could provoke a reaction from Turkey. One of them saying they generally dispute the Greek island sovereignty of all. They want all the islands to be demilitarized. 
They say no to any extension of the uh, exclusive economic zone and the nautical mile barrier off of the Greek islands. And they also demand that no prime minister, any kind of government minister, visit the Greek islands. They give the example of Samos being one of the closest ones to Turkey, as that would be deemed a provocation. And so with all this going on, I mean, as Erdogan is still here, he's, of course, very willing to increase rhetoric with Greece, but hopefully, not hopefully, likely would not attack a fellow NATO member that would that would very much push him one side of the issue against, you know, his current ostensible allies in the West. But there's obviously talk about kicking them out of NATO. That's really unlikely considering Turkey is a founding member of the second largest military. Again, as Dimitri said, I would agree with him. I think it's more likely that we see a very large attempt to, you know, uh, reinforce the election as they did with Trump, you know, to get get the right people in, as the U.S. likes to say, in 2023. But we're going to be watching it very closely, of course. And speaking of reinforcing elections, of course, uh, more on the home front, and uh, we do we do see, of course, the election of uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, into the uh, speaker's seat of the Senate um, of, of the American Congress. So. This, of course, uh, has been, you know, has been developing all throughout the early week of 2023. And I've not seen the stalemate of this scale, I think, since for a while, probably since. And politically, we haven't seen the stalemate of this scale since uh, the dispute between the Biden and the Trump presidency, um, when that was delayed for about a month and a half or so. And, uh, of course, do you have any comments on that, Conrad? Because in in my eyes, it, it was essentially not just a debate between, say, oh, well, what's happening between, you know, the Trump side or, or the never-Trumpers and those who are pro-Trump and the American Republican Party, but also some of the more right-leaning, candid- uh, you know, congressmen such as Paul Gosar and Matt Gates, of course, their contribution or at least their opinions on some of the even foreign policy, perhaps spending or pro-Ukrainian-leaning attitudes in Congress um, have, you know, have sort of been become kind of main, mainstream, like they are the main oppositionists towards, you know, sending billions of American taxpayer dollars to Ukraine. So in a way, it does have implication on the whole geopolitical great scheme issues we were speaking about here. And now, so to speak, Trump himself and those people standing with Trump are not exactly pro-Ukraine or they're not anti-Ukraine. They seem to have more of a neutral position. Trump hasn't really said too many positive things about Zelensky, but he hasn't really gone against him either. I think it's more of a political utilitarian stance here. And yeah, so we see the election of Kevin McCarthy, who is uh, arguably very pro-Ukrainian. And yeah, I'd like to hear sort of European about his election, because that's only taken place this weekend on the Christmas Orthodox weekend of the 7th and 8th of January. So it's kind of a new development. I'm I really want to see where this, where all of this goes, what implications this will have on American domestic as well as foreign policy. Well, we did get the situation that is probably most likely to maybe in some sense, possibly legislatively, you know, through the actual process of government, reduce the amount of aid going to Ukraine, which, again, that's not to say it's guaranteed. McCarthy, you know, he wore the Ukraine pin and the Ukraine pocket square at the same time. So he made sure to really signal his support in a really stupid aesthetic way on the white it, it just looked weird but he he's very pro-ukraine the only anti-ukraine voices you can't even call them anti-ukraine voices they're just america first voices obviously matt gates paul gosar lauren bobert so these are the only people that have actually spoken out against aid to ukraine and at the end of it all only six representatives actually held out completely against mccarthy and that's not to say that i think that chip roy Gosar that ended up voting for McCarthy. I don't think it was necessarily a betrayal. I think it was the message was still sent that we're skeptical of you, but you did give us enough concessions that we're not going to risk. We're not going to risk some kind of Democrat speakership or even a Scalise speakership because Steve Scalise, who in theory could have taken over besides Kevin McCarthy, is even it would actually even be slightly 
more to the center than to the right of Kevin McCarthy. But those representatives were Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Bob Good, Andy Biggs, uh, Matt Rosendale of Montana, and I'm forgetting the sixth one, sorry about that, but they they really held out. Those are some great representatives right there. Lauren Boebert barely won. She won by like a few hundred votes in her district in Colorado. So it shows you that the disaster of the midterm really actually helped Kevin McCarthy because if a few more of those ones had flipped to the Democrat, McCarthy wouldn't have even had that much strong of an opposition. But uh, one of the leaders of the negotiations that ultimately got what I believe is going to be two, maybe even three uh, Republican Freedom Caucus, like the, the the Patriots, like you know Chip Roy, Matt Gates, these guys, they're members on the Rules Committee for the upcoming Congress, which would be huge, as well as a few other pretty powerful demands. Of course, enough a larger number of Freedom Caucus members on all the important committees, maybe even some chairmanships for some more patriotic, you know, right wing congressmen. The leader of that being Chip Roy, my representative here in the state of Austin, Texas. So proud of that. I've met him a few times. It was uh, so. We're, so I'm proud to have a representative. It's not easy. There's like maybe six representatives you can kind of be proud to have right now in American government, and I'm proud to have one of them. So that's very good. But like I said, there's not necessarily any guarantees that we're going to get a reduction in aid to Ukraine, but perhaps if the Patriot wing can really push its muscle with nonsense that Biden and the Senate try to push through and Ukraine continues to take these obvious losses and public opinion continues to shift, which it has, I believe even national review is publishing stuff about extreme Ukraine fatigue. The majority of people do not care about this. It's total waste. So if national review is publishing that it kind of shows you where the current state of public opinion is in the West on the issue. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose more, um, more more interestingly, I guess, in U.S. foreign policy uh, developments, uh, Biden's planned visit, of course, to to Mexico has recently been uh, precluded by a, a very uh, tumultuous, shall we say, arrest of uh, El Chapo, the famous uh, Mexican cartel uh, crime lord, um, crime crime lords. Uh, I believe twenty twenty nine year old. Uh, Twenty-nine-year-old son. So the son of this Mexican crime lord was, of course, uh, apprehended by by Mexican uh, federal police and taken into taken into custody. And now, what this caused was huge cartel war in the in the in the northern town of Sinaloa. Now, Sinaloa is famous for its, uh, I guess, the entire region is famous for some of its drug trade as well as drug production, which the cartels do control. Now, you may think, like, how does this impact any sort of foreign policy? Or, well, if if you if you've been following the whole Mexican ordeal, like Mexico is a probably the most tumultuous neighbor of the United States, of which it only has two, essentially Mexico and Canada. And so Canada is very controlled by, say, shall we say, globalist New World Order powers. I mean, if we go in conspiracy, conspiracy mode here, but Mexico is the is kind of like the gray area. Like Mexico is very Catholic, generally speaking, it is conservative. So how do you keep a country such as Mexico with hundreds of millions of people in check? Well, you promote crime you promote sort of cartels to cause you know menace and a ruckus on the border you kind of keep the country unstable like this would be a a great uh, foreign political bo- um, boon i suppose to to the um, american deep state and the you know globalists controlling the united states and why i mentioned globalists and why i'm coming at this from an i guess a more alex jonesian angle is because one of the stories alex jones reported on in 2012 and 11 was of course the obamagate uh, Fast and Furious scandal, where um, Barack Obama's uh, government was caught um, handing out uh, untraceable weapons to the uh, Mexican cartels. Now, 
handing handing a, a military grade weapons to the cartels was of course this was never prosecuted or chased up on by anybody but this occurred almost 10 years ago and alex jones was one of the first i suppose independent reporters who actually broke the story which is i think a great um uh, you know kudos to him it's a great achievement one of his probably i'd say top 10 things like a feather and a feather in his cap for that but um more recently so mexico is kind of breaking out in the region of sinaloa specifically i'm not going to say the whole of mexico is going into a civil war but at the moment at least 29 people have been reported killed uh members of the cartels these are the criminal gangs actually who's who's one of the chief members was of course captured by the federal police as well as members of the mexican federal police even members of the mexican military actually so it's gone to the point where some of these criminal organizations in mexico are so armed that the, the local police cannot even handle the heat at this point like they have kevlars they have you know 50 cal sniper rifles they have heavy machine guns they even have i'm not going to say like artillery and cannon but you know it, it gets it gets quite rough it's like everything before say heavy machinery such as tanks the mexican cartels already have so rocket launchers rpgs um yeah it, it's it's pretty insane now the, the sort of the exercise I, I had, at least when I was reading about this, I was saying, well, this is quite rough. Like, Mexico was always known as a place where the Mexican government has always tried to deal with crime and corruption and all of this. But what is the analogous situation in Europe? Well, Ukraine technically is similar, like, similar to being, being in Mexico of Eastern Europe. Like, it is the, it is a large country with a huge population, as, is, as does Mexico. It has a large degree of corruption, unfortunately, and always has for the last 30 years. And now Ukraine has an influx of weapons and machinery and things such as stinging missiles and drone, military X drones with explosives attached to them that has not been seen yet. Like, the Ukrainian battalions, so, so some of the neo-Nazi battalions, such as Idar, Azov, etc., even the right sector battalions, which are more like political organizations, are now more armed than the Mexican cartels are. So now we're looking at Mexico and all these cartels sort of fighting back against the Mexican government. Now imagine what would happen if some of these neo-Nazi battalions have began standing up against Zelensky or if, or say Ukraine defeats Russia, what would happen on the Ukrainian mainland, like on the, in the country itself? Like, will everybody fall in line and just begin voting for the next president? Or will they, will the country sort of break apart and military gangs take over these particular areas? Probably the latter. And not just that, but you can just imagine the amount of like like black market military weapon trading that will take place in Ukraine. So Ukraine, and where, the, where do all these weapons even come from? Let's just remember the Obama Fast and Furious scandal. Like these weapons are coming from overseas, you know, overseas makers. They're not made in Ukraine. They're being imported into the country. And so again, you had, just as Obama was sending weapons to the Mexican cartels in order to keep the government occupied, so is the U.S. government sending weapons to Ukraine now in order to keep the Russians occupied. And it's it's very, of course, you can say, well, geographically, you know, these are all very different scenarios. But I'm going to tell you this: if Ukraine does come out on top in this conflict, there will not be any peace. No, peace is long gone. Okay, the only way peace can be established this if is if there's a proper Nuremberg-style uh, justice system, you know, enforced on this area, and when everybody, you know, marked as neo-Nazi can be, you know, properly tried, etc. But at this point, Ukraine winning does not mean peace. Ukraine winning winning will mean similar situations to what's happening in Sinaloa, Mexico, at the moment, where you have these huge cartels armed to the teeth with military-grade weapons fighting back against the police. Ukraine will have the same issue. These neo-Nazi battalions are not going to listen to Zelensky or any other, you know, bureaucrat in Kiev. 
when you talk about Fast and Furious, it reminds me of earlier this year, we saw all these huge trucks of Ukrainian mines and Ukrainian ammunition just happen to be in the back of trucks in Kosovo, of all places, of course. And, you know, these, we have no idea how many of these weapons are actually ending up in the hands of Ukrainians. Not that that's a good thing, regardless, but we have no idea how many of these are going to the Middle East, the Caucasus, Kosovo, North Africa, Libya. Who, I'm sure thousands of these are in Libya already shooting it. Haftar's troops and Egyptian proxies and other and they're arming well John Bolton's arming Turkey inadvertently if you, if you think about the amount of different factions that are going on in some of these hot conflict destabilized zones that the US has wrecked with its foreign policy frivolities but Mexico speaking of Mexico of course you know Trump as we mentioned before his biggest problem will be fading into irrelevance he's doing his best here this is a good statement of course this is from Fox News. Trump vows to deploy U.S. special forces military assets to inflict maximum damage on cartels. I believe he, this is from Jack Posobiec, he was going to order the military to declare cartels enemy combatants and deploy Navy and special forces to defend the land and maritime security of the Western Hemisphere. Now, that would have been a great thing to do while you were president, um, Mr. Trump, but if you if you do somehow pull it off in 2024, that would be great, not only because it would help secure the border in my here great state of Texas, but it would definitely be a good reason to get our troops away from everywhere else they are i have family in the military i would at this time with the current state of relationships between russia and ukraine i don't want my family members in germany or in poland or any of these places i would much rather and then be uh you know defending the home front perhaps than about to get caught up in a battle with an actual you know militarized army over what's effectively an anti-christian crusade around the world that all being said Trump 2024 is looking more unlikely, perhaps, than it was even a few months ago. But this is a good move by him. It's a good way to garner support from the base. And this whole flare-up in Sinaloa, obviously, was a good was a good excuse to bring that up and to exploit this this current issue that's actually happening on our on our home front. You know, bring the Monroe Doctrine discussion back into things. Yeah, that's right. I think it's the only way American foreign policy can remain kind of healthy. Like, you know, coming back to it, like. This idea that the U.S. is like this global police officer. Now, it's that's only on the face of it, of course. In basic international relations, the U.S. and even if we follow like a realist perspective, the U.S. does not owe anybody anything besides, of course, looking after its own interests, which, which is operations like Fast and Furious, which we we believe that they probably are pursuing personal interests. For example, keeping Mexico unstable by keeping the cartels well funded and well equipped to handle you know local sort of affairs and we see this and even in mainstream media like this isn't even hollywood folks are aware of this like movies like sicario and tv shows like narcos like these things portray certain elements of reality that's actually happening so you have the cia actually infiltrating and acting in these cartels working together with them as well as the mexican government playing both sides against each other and this kind of reminds me of uh some of the folks um some of viewers in the comments of course of the previous podcast, I didn't mention the fact that, well, I described Zelensky's speech as a slightly Hitler-esque. Now, what was I, what I was saying was that his a militaristic style of actually giving the speech reminded me of maybe some of the speeches Hitler gave back in World War II, or perhaps Goebbels as well, like his total war speech. And Now, you have to understand, Zelensky and the Azov Battalion, they are, they are uh, of course, two different, they have two different political, of course, opinions about ukraine and how, how ukraine should operate and run and of course they they only agree because the u.s and so other globalist interests of course agree make them agree upon certain things and ally that so what, what you need to understand is that foreign 
foreign political actors do fund both sides of certain conflicts and even um you know sometimes they make them cooperate for example such as like the corruption in mexico like uh, you know the u.s funds the mexican government and they fund the cartels at the same time in the in ukraine Zelensky is funded and the azov battalions are funded as well so regardless of if the battalion of azov and Zelensky don't actually agree upon say politics and azov battalion believes in a more so autocratic sort of uh you know let's just say aristocratic model with a more like um, you know, Aryan sort of pagan undertones. Well, as Zelensky is a very liberal democratic person with like very progressive values, even a bit too progressive for some of the far right people. So you need to understand that Zelensky giving this speech, it's, it's because firstly, because he's an actor and he can actually portray a Hitler, a Goebbels, a even Trump character. He's very good. He's his comedy specials. If you watch them back um, from 2012, 13, are actually hilarious. He's a very good comedian. Zelensky is an A-tier comedian. He's better than some of the, you know, famous Western comedians or even those outspoken ones such as, you know, Joe Rogan. Zelensky is probably Dave Chappelle level. Like, his comedy is A-tier in Russian and Ukrainian. If you have, if you don't believe me, you can go ask any Russian speaker out there or Ukrainian speaker. Like, they will agree with you. So regardless of how cringe Zelensky is, he's a very gifted actor. And him acting as a sort of militaristic person, persona, um, you know, we're talking about the 45-minute speech that happened at the end of December... Him giving giving off that energy and vibe was to appeal to some of the more militarized sections of the Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian state at the moment, such as the Azov, Adar, right sector battalions. You know some of these more radical Kraken tornado, these groups which are very far right wing, and so he can actually appeal to them without even being on their side. It's like he, this guy knows how to appeal to a varied audience, similar to how Trump, you know, had these. Uh, you know, appeared on different, you know, at different LGBT forums at the same time appeared at evangelical Christian forums. Like, politicians have that ability to appeal to various groups at the same time. And Zelensky's doing exactly that. That's that's the reference which I made concerning, you know, his uh, very militarized German-like speaking. It's because he's, notice his speech to Congress is more like a, well, uh, we love prog progress, we love, you know, we love progressive values. Um, Ukraine is independent. We love. We want to be like the West. We want to be a gl globalized world economic forum type nation. That was the that was the energy there. Meanwhile, the speech Zelensky gives to his own parliament is very different. It's like Ukraine will stand to the last man. We don't need electricity. We're powerful. We're this huge ancient military force. Like. The vibe is completely different. Zelensky appeals to various audiences depending on the situation. He is a pragmatic actor in both a political as well as a professional sense. So please don't take it close to heart if, if you know you think I'm sort of saying Zelensky is right wing. He is not a right wing person, Zelensky. He is simply playing a right wing character when it suits him and when it suits his handlers most. Oh yeah, exactly. And again, as you had mentioned before, before we were not talking and in the previous episode, there's no like there's no publication and amplification of that speech with subtitles like it's got like a few hundred views on youtube nobody cares of course in that speech he like openly banned the canonical church he very much call he calls like members of the church terrorists and collaborators all sorts of terrible stuff you can look it up of course but it's getting no coverage it's getting they don't want to talk about every other speech that he gave was all was plastered all over the news but now that he's you know now that it's crunch time and he needs to get the loyalists in line he uh no one no one in the west wants to show wants to show our audience exactly what's really going on over there which is you know, it, it just goes to show you stuff, as they say. But when it comes to Mexico as well, AMLO, remember who, again, we might, I don't know if we have any Mexican listeners or not, I'm not an expert on Mexican politics, but for better or for worse, AMLO is sort of in the mold of these South American left-wing socialist nationalist guys, kind of like a Maduro, maybe like a Pe like a Pedro Castillo who was recently cooed out in, uh, in, in Peru. I believe he's actually is hiding in Mexico. He's friends with AMLO. And AMLO is, you know, he... 
while he's very much against the cartel, he didn't use as he wasn't as rhetorically you know uh, militaristic against the cartel as others causing using causing a lot of backlash in the US that was used against him. And I think the US would have somewhat of a vested interest in having someone that's more in line with neoliberal you know Americanist interest in power there. And in many ways Mexico has kind of been seen as a potential uh kind of distraction from America's enemies. You know, you've heard about the Zimmerman telegraph with Germany and Mexico and, you know, who knows how exactly real all of that was, but there's, it's always been a worry that, you know, maybe some of our more powerful enemies would exploit our underbelly there. But of course it'd be harder for them to do that. If Mexican military is more like a kind of SWAT team that has to deal with these disparate cartel members, as opposed to, you know, what it was during the Mexican American wars and the Texas war for independence when it was, you know, an actual almost European style, massive Spanish Catholic military that, you know, uh, thankfully lost to our my patriotic you know patriotic Texas ancestors, but in the end Mexico is is like Dmitri said it's a huge country way more populated than Canada way more actually economically relevant as far as its industrial capacity at least recently, but again it's been it's kind of at the chokehold of there's even of course satanic interest a lot of these cartels are openly occult and it it is not good for the people of Mexico who in the past have actually fought some very valiant battles against the forces of communism and secularism in the name of of Christ, actually. So there is a beautiful heritage in Mexico. Mexico could be a great place to live. In some ways, Mexico was a great place to live. I know certain provinces, like Mexico had a great, uh, very much diverse in how it handled COVID. There were some states where you could literally do whatever you wanted. It was one of the best places to be. And then there's one or two other states where like, they were trying to track every move you made. Our good friend Hervoyer, who I've been on his show on TNT radio, he's the host of Geopolitics and Empire. He has made it to Mexico, and I think he had a better time than a few other people. Not that it's perfect, of course, but compared to some places in the States in Europe, I think where he was in Mexico is a better place to be. Interestingly, that you bring up the topic of COVID, just kind of to finish off this episode, I think one of the subjects we wanted to speak about was the fact that there was uh, this, I guess, two particular opinions taking place, at least in the Orthodox world for the last two years, where there's this hard anti-vax stance, and then there's this, well, the anti-vax position, of course, being for all its validity was also amplified by the fact that clergymen placed uh emphasis on it and then of course there's the um realistic uh you know realist opinion where they said well look certain vaccines and covid enforcement such as you know wearing masks in church are needed for you know for the safety of the parishioners now why I'm mentioning this is because unlike in Mexico, where you know the Orthodox Church is a very small uh, presence in countries such as Russia or even the United States, um, some of the clergymen took very um, one-sided positions on this. For example, in Russia, some of the most famous bishops made very out, out, outwards um, anti sort of anti anti-vax stances. For example, Metropolitan Hilary and Alfeyev mentioned that look, if you don't take the vaccine and somebody gets sick from you and you and you know that person passes away, then you know that's on your conscience and you have to go confess it. So like, something like that is a very you know very kind of and Metropolitan Alfeyev, the person, the clergyman who said this was very. Like, he is technically a very influential clergyman, probably number three in all of Russia, or at least he was in 2020. But um, at this point, he uh, he he is kind of viewed as sort of this more, the more left-wing uh, member of, like, the Russian ecclesia, the Russian, the Russian, the great Russian uh, diocese and the Russian church in general. So he does have very sort of certain progressive opinions. So that should be... Well, he's sort of been, mm-hmm. uh, he's kind of an exile to this point, to Hungary. You know, he's now, he well, he used to be the head of, you know, external affairs for the Moscow Patriarchate. I actually saw him preach at the Antiochian Cathedral in New York City a few years ago. But now he's... Mm-hmm. 
in charge of the Russian mission and, you know, the Moscow Patriarchate in Hungary, which is a much smaller role. He's kind of been, I think, usurped by Metropolitan Tikhon of, of Skov. And, of course, Patriarch Kirill, while I believe he was vaccinated, he very much said that it obviously should be anybody's choice and all sorts of things like that. And they've obviously were all against any kind of mandate. And there were some also actually anti-vaccine bishops throughout Russia and other parts of the Russian world. I believe the only real place where you were in danger of falling for real vaccine tyranny was in parts of Moscow and St. Petersburg at the height of kind of the COVID mania. That's at least what I've heard. Yeah, absolutely. And even members of the Russian Orthodox Church who were in politics, we're talking about laymen. For example, the mayor of Moscow was very pro-vaccine, but he quickly dropped it and very pro-QR codes as well. So you had the QR scan, you know, in the metro at different shops, but, and even mask mandates were dropped in Moscow very quickly. So even the most progressive pro-vax, pro-COVID mandate folks in Russia really failed in their mission in order to enforce any sort of tyrannical, um, uh, you know, instances of, you know, COVID tyranny as Conrad, uh, you know, correctly coined it, as we saw it maybe in some of the Commonwealth states or even worse, first world nations like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, even some United, you know, even like states such as New York and California. So we have like these sort of uh, different sort of takes throughout the world. But generally speaking, the Orthodox world has been on point on the COVID issue. It has been very, very strong. And it actually uh, had very much, very, very, like quite a bit of there was a lot more redeemable things that came from this rather than say what we saw maybe in the catholic church where a lot of you know catholic clergymen actually fell to this idea that well you actually cannot take communion unless you're you know unless you're jabbed or things of this nature like these opinions are extremely radical and they never took place in the orthodox church which i think is extremely admirable the only place we saw any of that kind of nonsense was at a few greek parishes in canada but you know canada is just can that's a whole different story with canada but before we get into i think a bit more of a meta analysis of what we're going to talk about with kind of a view of this really hard about, about our view of general conspiracy about you know kind of a perspective on the wef and some of these other institutions and how it relates to real politics i want to go to one of the most vaccinated countries in the world which is the holy land in israel i don't know about palestine exactly how much they got or didn't get the vaccine. But Israel, you know, Robert Burla himself, you know, a dual Israeli citizen, a CEO of Pfizer, he, you know, made sure that his country was very vaccinated. And we're seeing, but outside of what's going on with the vaccine there, uh, we're seeing some big news. One with, uh, I believe it was a, a very radical member of the Knesset, Ben Gavir. He visited the Al-Aqsa Mosque against the wishes of, I believe even U.S. officials were like, why are you doing this? This is a, this is a, this is an escalation, and he, Ben Gavir, of course, is, a, is an ultra-Zionist who believes that the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock, you know, where Muslims, it's a very holy place for Muslims, and actually technically for, for Christians, Jews as well, obviously, in their each respective tradition, how it relates to Abraham, Ishmael, Muhammad, but he believes that it should obviously be torn down and be a certain section of the third temple and the Jewish sacrifice should be you know, restarted. And this is something that St. Paisios talked about as far as the Third World War, that eventually the Al-Aqsa Mosque actually would be destroyed. And we've seen, I believe, since 2018, 2019, that there's been a mock Sanhedrin that conducts a mock sacrifice on the Temple Mount preparing for this. And with Ben Gavir, of course, come hooligans and radicals, and they, they, they'll come and they'll throw rocks at kids. And then even, and the thing is, with these ministers, the idea forces are kind of obligated to defend these people. So the optics is always very bad for more moderates in Israel because they see these idea of troops that next thing you know, they get into some scuffle with some Muslim kid at a mosque. And But to the ultra Zionists, it doesn't really matter. They view all of it as pushing the envelope and, you know, kind of these 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 media victories for their for their cohorts. 
And unfortunately, it leads to terrible things happening. Like we saw, this wasn't an Orthodox seminary, but I believe it was an Anglican seminary, which, you know, high church in many ways in the Holy Land. Some of these liturgies look more similar to Eastern Orthodox services. This Anglican church had a cemetery and over 30 graves were desecrated by Israeli Jewish citizens. And these two events, you know, them coinciding isn't necessarily a coincidence. There's definitely a, there's, there's a push and, and, and Netanyahu is back in power. And while there were actually even more ultra-Zionist members of the previous coalition, they were tempered by much more moderate members. They, they formed this big rainbow coalition. But now that Likud, the kind of standard right-wing Israeli nationalist party, they were the ones that pushed for Trump to recognize the Golan Heights and move the USMC to Jerusalem. Now they're back in power. It seems that some of these groups might be feeling a bit more emboldened. And we mentioned that in our previous episode when it comes to Russia, Israeli, Putin relations. And now it seems that as we mentioned before, Assad and Turkey, they're kind of in agreement that, yeah, the Israelis, they're funding the Kurds, you know, they're not our guys. So if, if the U.S. is going to be doing work in 2023 to get Erdogan out, we may expect some Israeli help there. Yeah, of course. I think where Russia, Israel, and Turkey differ is the fact that I, I believe that probably in, in their deepest dreams, Turkey and Israel would not mind if Assad had to go and they had to divide, you know, Syria into their particular, you know, spheres, for example, Israel expanding north and, of course, uh, Turkey expanding southwards. So there's this understanding that, yeah, Israel and Russia can come to an agreement, but there is this I, this opinion that, look, uh, Putin actually supporting supporting um, supporting Syrian uh, the, the Syrian president Assad is of course a foreign in Israel's back. So will Israel actually listen to Putin? I think that's still uh, on the table. It's not exactly he, neither here nor there. Now, of course, Ben Gavir ascending to the Temple Mount is. I think I believe the first time, as Financial Times reports, the first time in five years that a, an Israeli official minister has actually ascended the Temple Mount and actually visited some of those uh, holy sites to both Jews and Muslims alike. And Ben Gavir, even before anybody made any threats, of course, tweeted something quite provocative where he just said, and I'll just uh, just quote him here. He just tweeted, The Israeli government, of which I am a member, will not surrender to a vile murdering organization. If Hamas thinks that it threatens me and this will deter me. Let them understand that times have changed. So Hamas hasn't even threatened Ben Gavir yet, but he's already kind of giving a precursor saying that, look, I'm not going to. And Hamas, for all those who don't understand, is a uh, essentially a radical Muslim group from Lebanon that, you know, Palestinians are very much members of. And this Hamas essentially is the most sort of radical, by radical, I mean, very pro-Palestinian uh, faction in in the Palestinian and Lebanon uh, area in the Levant, so to speak. So, Hamas is very much anti, as anti-Zionist as Zionists as, as the Zionist parties are anti-Hamas. So, it is like the the oppositionary sort of the balancing of the weights in the Holy Land at this point. And yeah, of course, uh, all of this him appearing on the Temple Mount is uh, yeah. I agree with the U.S. analysts, like it could lead to an escalation. As Conrad said, IDF forces, military Israeli forces accompanying him, it looks really bad because they're all armed, you know, proper assault rifles, attachments, and proper military. And like, yeah, it does look like, a you know, the military is here to confiscate uh, Muslim holy sites as, you know, the threat has always been around for the last, you know, hundred, you know, at least, uh, not a hundred years at this point, but at least the last 80 years. So that's, that's the realistic thing that's, um, I suppose it's always there. I'm, of course, in no way favor of, you know, ecumenism with Muslims or anything of the sort, but it just goes to show you, you know, the beloved of, you know, 
evangelicals, Christians in the West, you know, they're driving the actual Christians in this region into the arms of Muslims. Because if you're an Orthodox Christian, you just had over 5,000 square meters of, you know, very important real estate taken from you also by the IDF. And now you see this happening to Muslims. Like, you're going to be much more likely to ally with these people than, you know, even the people that have perhaps a more similar theology to you that are literally, you know, funding and supporting the people persecuting you, which, you know, is a tragedy. But when it comes to, you know, Christians and ecumenism and stuff, a big thing happened in the Catholic world. Pope Benedict, the, the, the actual pope, as some in the Catholic world might have you want to believe, he passed away. It was a big deal. You know, it's been kind of the talk of the town. People, a lot of people that aren't Christians and aren't Catholics, you know, are like, y'all rest in piss, you know, you're a pedophile, which it is in bad taste. That's not to say that, you know, Pope Benedict didn't perhaps handle some of the abuse scandals in a bad way, but... Compared to what's going on now with Francis, many Catholics view it as a real a real mark and reminder of the real era they are in, in their church. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about uh, the former Pope now who passed away. Like, just the fact that this, he was the first Pope, at least in recent history, the last 1,000 years, who actually actively, or not actively, but I suppose retired himself. And usually the Popes, they, they, stay, in your ten, they stay in their tenureship until, until death. So they're actually acting as Pope until they pass away and uh, go off into the next life. And so Pope Benedict actually, actually stepping down, um, close to a decade ago now is was probably one of the biggest things that have occurred in the, in the has occurred in the Catholic Church probably since I don't know maybe the fall of Constantinople and the um, emergence of the uh, Uniate connection there so it's it's a huge deal and I don't think Catholics have even you know come to terms as to what it what it meant the last you know the last ten to several years to have two popes one in retirement and one in sort of active duty pope francis who's you know still the acting pope now and certain catholics have even gone off into schism claiming that well pope francis is not the real pope because look how liberal and progressive he is meanwhile pope benedict was conservative now pope benedict he was more conservative but he was also um he also held a lot of mainstream catholic opinions which frankly um compared to say some of the orthodox theological ecclesiological cultural um, cultural takes do not even line up to that. So we have to keep that in mind. Pope Benedict, and he's he was very well respected, even, uh, you know, Mal- um, the famous Russian Orthodox billionaire Malafeyev even, you know, gave him a very, um, very uh, heartwarming sort of farewell. He said, look, I've met the Pope once or twice, and like, he's a very respectable man, and, you know, uh, very sorry to all the Catholics who feel deeply about his passing. And he was a very respectable Catholic Christian who tried to hold off the West from apostasy while he was still in, in his uh, papal seat. And afterwards, he's, he mentions Melotheev, this Russian billionaire, says, look, um, Pope Francis compared to Pope Benedict is you know, a complete disaster, at least for Catholic conservatives and those who actually want to hold on to their Western European traditions. Benedict, uh, many are saying now that he's passed, that before he passed, he was expressing extreme sadness and even surprise at Pope Francis's gutting of the Latin Mass. Because Pope Benedict, for those who don't know, issued, he was the one that actually gave all Catholic priests the right of personal discernment to serve the traditional Latin mass, but Pope Francis took that away. And now as a priest, you have to have the blessing of your bishop to serve the traditional Latin mass. And there are, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of bishops in the Catholic church that want nothing to do with the Latin mass and want a very watered down, secularized, Protestantized Novus Ordo. And there's even articles now, people are in the left of the Catholic spectrum now, now that he's died, I'm seeing articles now that Pope Benedict has passed, it's time for the traditional Latin mass to go entirely. And again, I don't mean to exploit a crisis in your church, but if that comes the case, there, there's the Western Rite and Orthodoxy, also the Eastern Rite is beautiful, like I encourage our Catholic friends 
that are listening to perhaps visit their local Orthodox church. There's, if there's one thing I'm not, I'm confident will not happen in the near future in Orthodoxy, it's some bizarre Orthodox Novus Ordo. So I'll, I'll just give, I'll, I'll, I'll hang that little morsel out for you right there. Yeah. And just to be respectable, like, you, you know, your journey to Orthodoxy, or at least, you know, being open-minded and looking into the Orthodox church now that Pope Benedict has passed should be, of course, looking at Pope Benedict's words himself, like see what he had to say about the Eastern Orthodox Church, see what he had to say about our culture, some of our theology, our conservatism, and you you may be surprised. So I think that's the starting point, definitely for those who have no idea what Eastern Orthodoxy is about. Definitely look into that on, on that angle. As you can see, most Eastern Orthodox countries are extremely conservative. Their culture, their family values are being upheld to the highest degree. Meanwhile, of course, um, uh, the Catholic Church, there are there are people at the top who want to change things. For example, if you look at the Catholic community in Germany, it's not very, um, at least those on the conservative angle are being pressured towards you know, some of the more liberal values um, and some of the more progressive apostate um, opinions that are around. So the Catholic Church, you know, it's, and then with the death of Pope Benedict, I think uh, a certain door has closed, like that era of wholesome, wholesome leadership has ended like the pope john paul ii sort of uh you know these pope benedict these uh, characters of of great faith and sort of that had these old values old 20th century opinions have pope francis in, in many ways compared to those previous popes is a very 21st century pope he even says you know very 21st century things and even when pope francis was elected to the sea i remember i remember my grandmother even saying like oh how bad could it be like he's just the he's a jesuit he's a jesuit monk he has no he had no possessions he's been in the he's been a monastic for so many years he's from south america you know he speaks latin he you know speaks spanish he's like how bad could this poor monk be who you know will be elected to the sea and look look at the results now so uh, look, in all due respect, like Catholics do need to, I think, open up at least open up to some of the words Pope Benedict was saying about Eastern Orthodoxy and just explore some of the options because eventually some of the progressive and liberal changes occurring in the in the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church will in fact come to your local parish. Yes, it's like Ronald Reagan once said, it's like trickle down economics, right? Changes at the top will eventually trickle down to every diocese every local parish and you will feel it eventually so this is i suppose just a warning i'm i can't tell you what to do and i cannot make the move for you but you do need to you know keep your options open yeah i think as we wrap this episode up i think it's a good place with regarding the vatican to kind of look back on the 20th century and the history the the general arc of history and you know the church of god is always going to be a pivotal and critical place at whatever's going on in the world at whatever machinations the devil and his willing minions among humanity want to throw at it, it's always going to be relevant. And as we saw in the 20th century, we saw, of course, the fall of the Anshin regime. I've called the alchemical transmutation of the world mind. We've all been gaslit into this into this modern and or postmodern, whether you're in the New Age or into the atheist secularism stuff, into this kind of just milieu of self-determination and no moral grounding, and everyone's looking for their meaning, and everyone in these countries has an identity crisis. All this stuff, it's this... It's just this fake nonsense, you know, I always talk about a return to a reality, a return to the emperor, a return of the church, but the 20th century saw the death of that, and you saw the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, the East and the West, kind of floating out there. And I think seeing what happened to both in the 20th century gives us a bit of a picture into, you know, which church ultimately is preserving the gospel and preserving the Eucharist and the sacraments of Christ in this age, and as we saw I think in the 20th century, the Catholic Church ultimately became a bit of a, a bit of a servant of what you could call the global American Empire at one end, and then just in general, 
global financial interest, whether it's the Vatican Bank or Pope John Paul II becoming a hardcore kind of cold warrior, at the, you know, in the with Ronald Reagan and all this stuff. That's not to say that communism was bad, but we know that that was a dialectic that was enforced. And as communism fell, we've now been able to actually see Christian rebirth, whereas in the West that supposedly, quote unquote, won the Cold War, we're seeing we're seeing horrible secularist decline. And what, what happened in the 20th century, it wasn't like the church, the, the Eastern church was doing necessarily the same thing. Sure. Some, there was some surgeonism going on, but there was just thousands of martyrs. As father Josiah Trenum says, more martyrs were created in that time that finally, since the early church, like that's the only comparable era as far as amount of martyrs produced under the Soviet yoke. And now that we've seen it emerge from that, we're finally seeing whether it's the conflict in Ukraine, we're seeing the growth of orthodoxy worldwide finally. And, and kind of it's 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 reassertment and it's re and it's reinvigoration as a as a force against the forces of evil. And again, that's not to say that there aren't fantastic Catholic people and there aren't even Catholic communities that are in their part of the world doing good deeds and doing good things. But I think just again from metapolitical, uh, theopolitical, as you might say, our podcast is about perspective. The arc of the 20th century show is, if you look at the place of the Orthodox Church, it it, it provides what I consider the most holistic understanding of world events. Very well said, Conrad. And I think with those uh, fine words, I think we can close off the first episode of 2023. We appreciate everybody who's listened to this point. It's been a long episode, but of course, as the first one of the year, I think we should cover most of the subjects least at hand so that we can move on to you know some of the more interesting developments that will take place, we believe, in January and February of this year, moving into you know, Great Lent after the Christmas period and Theophany and all the other great Christian feast days upon us. Okay, so Merry Christmas for those who have celebrated this week, this passing weekend, and hope you guys have a great week um conrad do you have any parting words for our audience no i think this was a fantastic conversation be sure to listen to our previous episode it, it it's good it gives a lot of analysis some of our reflections on 2022 click the links to the stuff in the description it'll provide even more context and with all of that be sure to follow us on telegram world war now telly that'll be linked below obviously follow us on twitter world war now underscore subscribe to us on substack world war it really helps us out. Please make a Substack account. That is also fantastic. We want to hear from you in the comments. I do my best to reply to the comments. We've actually got some great insight. We've got some great people in this community that are posting links, posting books, translations to stuff that you can't find anywhere else. In our YouTube comments, we have people sending things from Serbian saints, other all sorts of fantastic stuff. So make an account on Substack. It really helps us out. We're going to have some future threads and stuff that we can interact with you as well. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like. It really helps us there as well. Uh, share the videos, obviously. Follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad, GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri, O Canonist, the Orthodox Canonist. His account's been blown up recently. And uh, yeah, all the support's been fantastic. I wish everybody a Merry Christmas, especially our old calendar friends, a Happy New Year. And uh, say your prayers. God bless. Uh, pray for the church in Ukraine. And we'll see you next time.